Hey there. Welcome to Soul Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. We are your hosts, I've gathered, because I'm in front of a microphone, and so, so is Bay. <laughs> so I can only assume we are your hosts. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm the boy Bay. And, dude, this is the last episode of the season. Oh, man, I love having these conversations with you, Kirsten. It, they're amazing. They kind of, like, lift me up every time, give me a lot of insight. Mm. And I always come into it blind, scared, a little bit scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it turns uh-huh. out well. What was your favorite part? Because, you know, my, I don't even need to tell you. It was the puppies. It was, oh, yeah, It was sure. Amelia Earhart. I think <laughs> uh, early on it was Octavio Jones, the, the, the photojournalist. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, great stuff. Yeah. I, loved, I love storytelling. I love how people can connect with their environments. I have a grandma that I love so much. And so I love hearing about, you know, matriarchs of families and, and different things like that. Uh huh. Yeah. This has been an awesome season. I don't know how you felt when the producers were like, oh, we're going to do mental health for this season. Yeah. I was like, there's no possible way we could cover even like the tip of the iceberg in this, which like, of course, we still haven't because that would be, you know, the longest podcast in history. But like, damn, there's so many different angles that we were able to get different experts from. I absolutely love this season. I encourage everyone to run every episode back three times, three times, because there's always something that you miss. Mm-hmm. And um, and run this episode back. This episode is wellness, you know? Mm. Wellness is, is very much a hot buzzword in the world of mental health lately. And our guests today are going to help us really, really parse out what the vague word even means. Yeah, and first we're gonna be joined by Dr. June Kim to talk about her research into cross-cultural wellness. Yeah, then we'll sit down with Dr. Glenn Fox to learn about how practicing gratitude can positively impact our mental health. And to close out this season, we're chatting with Malika Gilpin, director of the One R Community Space here in West Philly. Yeah, we've got a full episode, so we might as well get going. Dr. Kim, welcome to So Curious. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with you. Can you talk about who you are, introduce yourself, all the things that you do, your background? We want the whole spiel. All right. So I am a social psychologist. I'm a professor of psychology at the College of New Jersey. I teach courses on psychology of emotion, psychology of happiness. I also conduct research on emotions and the ways in which our culture shapes and helps us interpret our experiences of emotions. So you work in well-being and research, Mm -hmm. and we want to get specific. So I'm curious, in your research, how do you define well-being and also how do you measure well-being? Mm -hmm. So I research what we call subjective well-being, and that's what people colloquially think of as happiness. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it's subjective is because, you know, happiness is subjective. It's something that we experience and it's something that we evaluate for ourselves to figure out, hmm, am I happy or not? As opposed to something that's objective, right? So I am objectively sitting here in this chair. My blood pressure level, for example, is an objective number, your height, your weight, An objective, something that's very relevant to my students would be, you know, how well they did on the midterm that we had last week. But what you make of those objective things is very subjective. For some students, 87 is a great score. And for others, it's a terrible score. I'll take 87. 
Yeah, I'll take 87. <laughs> I know, right? I know plenty of people who might have anxiety around not getting mm-hmm. a perfect score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's nothing terrible about 87, but absolutely some people get very anxious about it. Mm. So you might look at somebody's life circumstance and say, oh gosh, you know, they might have a really great life. They have a new car. They own their house. They're in great physical shape. And you might think that they must be really happy, but that person is thinking, oh gosh, you know what? I have this house, but the guy down the street has a bigger house and they have a fancier car and they might not think that their life is all that great. So it has to be subjective because how we interpret our circumstance and whether we take that and experience it as being happy or not is a subjective experience. Yeah. Now, much of your research investigates how culture impacts well-being. What aspect of culture do you focus on and why is that interesting to you? You know, why did you pick out that Mm -hmm. specific thing to focus on? So I look at different aspects of culture. So in the past, I've looked at what people often consider ethnic culture. So like our ethnicity and how that informs the way we think about emotions, the beliefs we have about emotions, um, how we interpret the emotions that we experience as being positive, negative, good, bad. You know, how much of emotion is it? I also look at religion and Mm. how our religious background informs our emotions. And I find all of this really interesting because as human beings, we're multifaceted. Mm. You know, every single one of us have multiple identities that we bring to the table. You know, for me, it might be being female, being Asian, being American, being a professor, all sorts of different things intersect so that when you look at a person there's sort of an amalgam of all these different things and you can't separate out Mm. the person from their culture. Are are they reference points for happiness or joy? Like your culture, in my space, this means X and Mm. somewhere else it means something different. We live in a really diverse society Mm -hmm. and there's all kinds of cultural notes all over the place. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And so how much emotion is it okay to express? Mm -hmm. You know, and and it's one of those things that we learn along the way as children, you know, oh, it's okay to be like this in the classroom and it's okay to be like this with my family or maybe in church or in different spaces that we have in our lives. And so we learn these norms, I guess. It's social norms about what's appropriate to express. So we might be experiencing these emotions, but we know it's okay to fully express what you're feeling with some groups and not necessarily with other groups. And that's a lot of pressure too, to move through different spaces. Yeah. And so I'm curious, do you have any stories or like anecdotes that have stuck out to you in your research that really kind of demonstrate the connection kind of really proved there is such a connection between culture and well-being. I was actually thinking of my current research where I'm looking at what it means to be a woman and that impact of that on our lives. And we don't really necessarily think of being a woman as a culture, but you know, we live in a gendered society. And so gender is an aspect of culture and cultural knowledge thinking about the ways in which our culture and gender and gendered culture intersect to inform our happiness. And I'm looking to see not just 
ways in which women in different cultures might be happier versus not, but the policies, the institutions, the laws of different countries Mm. that might promote or not promote the subjective well-being of women. Because with culture, it's everywhere. So if you want to say, well, you know what? Women on average in Norway, for example, might be happier than women on average in South Korea, for example. We might not necessarily want to cherry pick aspects of culture because culture is interwoven everywhere. But are there policies and laws that promote subjective well-being to a greater extent than others? And that's something that I'm interested in currently because a lot of the times we think of happiness as an individual thing. But a lot of the times, there are things that help society in general raise our subjective well-being. Mm. I like that. I like that. Yeah. And, and I want to ask, just a second ago, I was just talking about you know moving through different spaces and just living our day-to-day mm-hmm. lives. How does living our day-to-day lives affect our well-being and um, the way we interact with the spaces around us? Are, are there certain things we can do to promote a healthy well-being? Oh, absolutely. Because... Day to day, gosh, of course you're going to have adversity. That's just part of living life. (laughs) And so there is actually quite a large body of research on this. It's not something that I've done, but research by esteemed scholars all over the world. And some of my favorites on promoting subjective well-being are things like gratitude diaries. I can say personally, I went through a phase where I was having a lot of mental health issues and I started using a guided journal that I got at Barnes and Noble. I bought a few of them. I didn't have to like go ask my psychologist or something for it. It's super accessible. And it was, I mean, like a world of difference. Just being prompted to be like, what's something good that happened today? And you're like, oh, actually a bunch that I didn't think about, you know? Mm -hmm. So actually, let me just add one more thing and say, you know, if gratitude isn't your cup of tea, There's other things, right? So if exercise is more your line, yep, exercise is great. Meditation, practicing kindness, savoring joys. There's lots of various activities that people can do to increase their subjective well-being. It's hard. And as you mentioned, it is a practice. You do have to maintain it, but it is something that can be done. And I strongly urge people to go look for some of these things. And these are evidence-based. There's research evidence showing that they work. So I do strongly encourage people to go, go look for them. Absolutely. And I really appreciate the note on uh, just the communal aspect. We think about our well-being as an individual, and there's certainly a communal functionality to people being Mm -hmm. well and taking care of each other so yeah you know absolutely little note at the end yeah (laughs) yeah well thank you so much this is great i mean i know personally like i'm such a facts and figures kind of person i love hearing when something that feels so large as well-being you know it's like oh is this just hippy dippy kind of touchy and it's no it is health mental health is health it's based (laughs) i keep saying it i love it yeah mental health is health it's Mm -hmm. based in so much research and there is hope thank you for what you're doing seriously it's wonderful yeah oh of course thank you so much for having me Uh, Thank you so much to Dr. Kim for agreeing to come on this show. Yeah, what she said about gratitude journals at the end there dovetails perfectly into our next guest, whose research focus on gratitude, Dr. Glenn Fox. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Dr. Glenn Fox, can you introduce yourself and tell us everything that you do? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm an assistant professor of clinical entrepreneurship at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. My background is pretty strange for an entrepreneurship professor in that my training is all neuroscience. So I have a PhD in neuroscience and my background and interest is all in about emotion regulation in the brain. And then where I'm really interested is how can we think about these things differently? How can we use our mind? How can we change our relationship to emotion? Mm. And you know, how can we use that little voice in our head or use whatever other tools we can have to like live a little better? So that's what brought me to the study of gratitude. I wanted to ask Dr. Fox, how would you describe a good life? Mm. That's a question with a lot of philosophical roots. Um, (laughs) Jump into it. I mean, there's a science answer and there's a personal answer, right? So there's a lot of really smart folks who've looked at the science of the good life, right? So it certainly has to do a lot with our relationships. It's hard to imagine having a good life without having good, close personal relationships. It's hard to imagine it not having a sense of meaning, not having a sense of hope or optimism, mm. and I think not having a sense of gratitude, right? So in terms of the science, three of the biggest predictors of mental health are gratitude, purpose, and optimism. And how is gratitude defined in your work? So there's two things. So I define gratitude in my work as the feeling we can have when we receive something that comes at effort and fulfills a need. And this is a kind of a dry definition of gratitude that helps us in research because it gives us a few parameters and variables that we can look at. We can sort of dissect these variables and kind of think, okay, well, maybe if the effort were more clear, maybe then our gratitude can go up. Similarly, we might think of how we need something and say, oh, well, this fulfilled a basic need, a psychological need, or something like that. That has to do with our state. And so gratitude is a big, complex, multidimensional term Mm. in a very simple definition, like, you know, gratitude is part effort and part need, at least gives us a a starting point for some parameters to kind of manipulate and, and measure and see what influence those can have on the feeling of gratitude. The broader definition of what is gratitude, there are actually quite a few definitions of it, right? It's a feeling of thankfulness, a feeling of appreciation, (laughs) a feeling of closeness to those who have benefited us in some way. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think the other one is humility, I think is really important Mm. as a sort of an antidote to cynicism and entitlement. You know, a lot of the thinking on gratitude is related to saying, you know, like, I didn't deserve these wonderful things, but I have them. Mm. That's often a really good on-ramp to gratitude. Those are kind of some of the ways that I think about gratitude in terms of putting some guardrails. I want to say it's not one thing. It's a really complicated feeling and what we're learning about emotion and the brain and how we talk about these things. It's it's important to pay respect to just the range of labels we can ascribe under the same umbrella of emotion. Yeah. That I don't, you know, necessarily know what gratitude feels like to one person or another. How could we, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the situations that kind of lead us to gratitude are remarkably consistent. Yeah, yeah. that was yeah, yeah. going to be my next question was like, what are some ways that you think people can practice gratitude in their everyday life? Some action items. I would say 
Treat it like a little laboratory for gratitude. Here's a few things the research has shown is that keeping a gratitude list and writing thank you notes can both be really powerful ways of eliciting gratitude. I think the research has not looked as much into what we should be grateful for and how often and how deep or whatever it is. And that's just part of science taking a long time to do these things, right? So the research on gratitude is relatively uh, young. And so a lot of stuff is yet to be discovered. Mm. Regular practice is really important. As little as once a week can really make a big difference. For once a month, once a year, whatever, is a lot better than zero. Don't feel a lot of pressure to, to feel like you have to, you know, have some transcendental feeling of gratitude every single moment. I think it's also kind of take some pressure off of ourselves to not feel guilty when we quote unquote don't feel grateful enough. And to then flip that and say, okay, well, what can I notice right now that's going well? What are some of the things that had to go well for us to be here today? Earlier, you mentioned guardrails, just trying to understand gratitude. You know, as a scientist, how do you measure the benefits of gratitude? Is there a number, a ticker? Like, how do you put that into data? Yeah, so the research has looked at a wide variety of outcomes related to both practicing gratitude. Like, you know, if you're starting from scratch and you say, okay, keep a gratitude journal every day for eight weeks. And these are called interventions or positive psychology interventions. And these interventions have been shown to improve sleep, reduce symptoms of physical pain, increase social relationships, resilience, motivation to exercise. And in some studies have been shown to reduce even inflammatory markers. And these results are kind of like those measures, those measuring states. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so some of them are self-report, meaning that you ask people, hey, how are you doing today? Mm. And they'll say, good, and which shouldn't be trivialized, right? Like people are pretty honest in these things, believe it or not. And a lot of these self-report measures go pretty well for gratitude. But then the biological measures are coming along nicely too. There's some research showing changes in brain activity related to gift giving that can occur after practicing gratitude for a while. There are studies looking at gratitude interventions in people who may be dealing with you know, depression and have even found changes in those symptoms related to their depression and changes in brain activity related to that too. So we're getting to the place where we can sort of measure the effects of these things. In my research, it's published in my dissertation, but not in a journal for now, so just FYI. Mm -hmm. um, but we found that in our experiment where we had people just focus on gratitude, that the deeper feelings of gratitude had lower overall heart rate during the time of those reflections compared to less deep feelings of gratitude, if that makes sense. So the more gratitude people felt, the lower their heart rate was. Um, over the span of an experiment just meant to give people gifts and the chance to experience gratitude in real time. All we did is really simple. We just gave people these kind of simulated gifts and said, how grateful do you feel? And we correlated their rating with what happened to their heart rate. And it turned out that just during the time that they felt the most gratitude, they had the lowest heart rate. And we think that was really surprising. You know, it's yeah. really interesting. I wouldn't expect that. Yeah, so that might have something to do with gratitude's health benefits. We don't know. We need more testing, but it, it's really promising that we could take something as vague and ambiguous and complex as gratitude and pin it to a set of physiological responses. 
how does hearing other people's stories help us practice gratitude and make us feel and I guess better or worse and navigate just mental health? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important we start to take perspective, right? I think that being able to take someone's perspective, see the world through their eyes, is often a really good on-ramp to gratitude and empathy and compassion that can bring us closer and can create that sense of shared humanity. Yeah, right. You get stuck in your own narrative sometimes about things. You know, I, I talk to some people who experience depression and anxiety and things like that. And what's tough is sometimes and trying to provide comfort and bring up gratitude, they say, well, gratitude isn't enough. Mm. Um, I, I'm curious how you might respond to someone who's experienced maybe like a really bad time and uh, you might present gratitude and, and, and it might respond that's not enough. So yeah, there's a lot of sensitivity we really need to have here. There's an interesting kind of personal context. When I was doing the the hardest work of my life to try to finish my dissertation, I was studying gratitude. I really wanted to be in this first cadre of scientists doing brain imaging of gratitude. But at the same time, my mom was dying of ovarian cancer. Mm. And it was everything to her for her to see me get my PhD. And it was so important to me to try to get my dissertation done before my mom passed. And I was working as hard as I could. We're doing hospice care and I'm trying to do analysis. I was literally in the chemo clinics doing analyses, trying to get it done. I didn't, I didn't get it done, right? And so here I was in this kind of weird sort of personal paradox of studying gratitude, this thing that's supposed to be this transformative thing. And you read about all the, you know, all the missives on the... Uh, the welcome mats to our homes mm-hmm. and the framed bathroom decorations saying thankful mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and all that. And, and all we hear is like, just be grateful. Right. And I was going through this and I was like, well, what a weird little experiments within experiments running this. Mm. So I really feel for people who might be out there being like, hey, I'm suffering. Like, I don't want to hear this, this person talking about gratitude. But the thing is that it helped me. It really did help me even in that time. And the reason it helped me is because I tried to do little by little. And I gave myself permission for baby steps to think about small things I was grateful for, right? I still remember getting a coffee on the the morning after she died. And it was like, I was just in a haze. I mean, it was like getting hit by a truck. And I still remembered going into this coffee shop and being like, I'm still just really thankful for this little cup of coffee. And... And it still meant something. Now, did it take the pain away? Did it bring anything back? Like, well, no, of course, I was still in a lot of pain, but I was still finding ways for small things. Grief is a form of gratitude. I really, I think that, I think Mm. I had, I think I'm borrowing that from a lot of smarter people. Um, (laughs) It's absolutely true. It sounds funny, but like it, it can be translated into gratitude, Mm. but I really suggest baby steps don't think that it solves the problem, but finding one small thing to be grateful for, even if it's a single breath, and say, I'm going to take one breath and feel grateful, and then I'll go back to feeling crappy. And <laughs> I do that sometimes. I'm like, oh, I did it for one breath. Why not five? Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing that. We really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, seriously. My last question for you was just, in our research about you, yeah. I, you have created the gratitude operating system for jobs and organizations <laughs> like within a workplace. Can you explain what that is and why you find gratitude to be so important to practice within leadership and workspaces? Oh, 
Man, uh, yeah. How much time you got? No, yeah. I mean this is this is this is what I'm so optimistic about. This is what I'm so forward thinking about. Um, it's taking all this research and putting it into people's hands, right? Putting it into the pocket of business leaders and founders and entrepreneurs to bake gratitude into every element of their operations. I call it Grateful OS. And the idea is to do a deep dive with organizations into their policies, both transactional and transformational. It could be something like performance reviews. It could be something like hiring, onboarding, and even transitioning away from people. And we apply the lens of gratitude, right? So onboarding is a really crucial part of growing companies, right? Hiring people correctly and folding them into the culture effectively uh, requires a lot of skill. Those beginnings are very fragile. So Grateful OS is a system for engendering and cultivating that sense of gratitude at every element of a culture and measuring how it, it helps, right? So turnover is extremely costly at small and large firms. So how might turnover be helped? How might you know, burnout be remedied? How can gratitude help with these things? Now, will it solve all the problems? Like, well, no, but hopefully it allows a little perspective and hopefully allows a few tools that especially entrepreneurs and founders, you know, they might have a really good idea. They might have a background that like, okay, this idea could really grow, but they're maybe not up to date on like leadership and management. And so Grateful OS is designed to fill that niche where people can sort of build their management philosophy. It will also help keep your ethics in check, right? Mm. So ethics are really where you want to start with a lot of this stuff. A lot of organizational missteps come from a lack of ethics. And I think related to that is a lack of gratitude, believe it or not. So ideally for people just getting into this sort of thing and, you know, working with gratitude can provide a filter for this thing. So that's why it's called Grateful Operating System. I know a lot of people are unhappy in those kind of jobs, so I'm sure that can only help, right? Everyone's having a great time in corporate America. Yeah, everybody loves it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, honestly, for sharing your time and your experience. I know uh, gratitude is such an interesting discussion to have. Yeah, no, thank you all so much. Yeah, this was an absolute pleasure. Oh, I'm Um, so glad. Feel free to reach out anytime. Thanks so much, Dr. Fox, for taking time to come and speak with us. Yeah, I mean, it gives us a lot to think about and we're not done thinking yet because we have one last guest to help us break down this very vague idea of wellness. Malika Gilpin, thank you so much for coming into the studio to speak with us. Can you introduce yourself and what it is you do? My name is Malika Gilpin and I am the co-founder and co-creator of One Art Community Center located not too far from here, West Philly, right on 52nd Street. Nice. Nice. Can we talk about what is One Art's mission? And then also, like, what was the inspiration? How did you get into this? Yeah. So first, actually, before I go into this, I don't know if you would mind, but I would love to just, as your listeners are tuning in, if we could just take a moment to tune in with each other. Absolutely. Having our feet flat on the ground. And... Just taking a moment to breathe and slow down in this time of such a hurried culture. Sometimes just taking that moment, centering, connecting 
with our breath. And that can be as simple as just being aware of it. Being aware of your inhales and exhales and allowing them to deepen as our feet are flat on the ground, feeling that connection, that gravitational pull, just helping us to ground. And as we're here together in this room, but the listeners, you all are all over, uh, but we can just be together in this moment. and breathe. And reminding ourselves that wherever we are, we can always come here. Whatever we're going through, whatever hurricanes are happening, the tornadoes, what's happening all around us, you know, we can just go inside and just breathe and find a moment of peace. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you, that was awesome. Oh, I really needed that. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Why did you need that? I never realize how clenched my jaw is mm. sometimes. You know, the like, mm -hmm. relax your forehead, relax your shoulders, unclench your jaw. Right. Is that something that you try to do like every morning when you wake up, every time Not you get in the just every morning. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I was saying, like when we're in it, especially mm -hmm. when we're in it and it's like everything is happening so quickly and there's so much input, you know, we're in such a digital world now. There's so much. And so just taking that moment and breathing and acknowledging that breath right. and acknowledging our humanness and so interesting when you say that <laughs> the moment you say that all right let's take a deep breath mm. I, I i instantly i was like oh yeah i'm a person i need to kind of like Breathe. relax and, and tap into that why right. would you say that taking a moment is important just mentally and and for our overall health yeah it's just intentionally slowing down intentionally connecting with ourselves, you know, even just like with the young ones, just holding their hand. Okay, let's just breathe. Let's mm -hmm. breathe. <laughs> you know? How many times are like the young ones going, having a temper tantrum mm -hmm. or whatever it is, or even the elders, whoever, right. just, just breathe. Yeah. Let's do it together. And making those connections is even more important, especially because we're so disconnected. We're mm -hmm. so disconnected from nature from each other. Is this what happens at the One Art Center? You know, what you this just did? This is exactly what happens. Mm. So when you enter the gates of One Art, you are, you're entering like this magical world in the middle of, you don't even know where you are. I remember a comedian once came and did a performance and he's like, I don't know, this is, I'm in the middle of the hood and, and I walk into this corner store and then all of a sudden I'm like in Narnia and there's <laughs> lions everywhere painted on the walls and there's green everywhere and everybody's smiling and there's all this love and that's what we are. Um, one art is, is a space, but it's also an experience. It's an experience of finding that peace and healing in the middle of a rough 
space and yeah. then time. I love the way you described it because it was a jarring switch of environments. I'm in a store, I'm, in a, I'm <laughs> on a block and whoa, where am I? Am I in you know, this place right. and that place? And so that seems like an immediate impact of One Arts, but can you talk mm -hmm. about the impact the space has on the community, particularly with respect to mental health and wellness? Right. So One Art is a brown and black founded space. And so, especially being in our neighborhood, we see how important it is that folks see people that look like them um, doing the things that we're doing. Sometimes I describe it as an urban eco arts village, but mm -hmm. that doesn't really summarize what it is because it is such an experience. We do have different black and brown businesses that are located on site. There's Plant and People, there's I&I &I Collective, which is a holistic artisan boutique, and all of these spaces provide healing tools mm -hmm. um, through different methods, right? And they both opened in the middle of the pandemic. Wow. Um, so it's not a coincidence. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Not a coincidence. We're like, okay, people need plants in their house, and there's all these studies where even in hospitals, if there's a, a plant on the shelf, the patient heals quicker mm. and they don't feel as tired. It's that green, it's the life and really surrounding ourselves with it. So in creating this space, we created an oasis and we're able to share that through gardening, through these businesses that are located here. We have different community groups that gather that don't feel safe out in the world, creating that kind of space. And we just started creating, maybe at one point you guys can come and do your podcast with us because we are in the middle of creating Absolutely. a multimedia space. Yeah. And so, you know, just again, taking all the tools that we can get our hands on mm -hmm. um, and being able to offer it to people in a way that's not intimidating, all are welcome, it's inclusive, it's embracive. Mm -hmm. And our farm, we have a farm and we have herbs growing and food growing and animals. And, oh my gosh. You know, and so it's, this is another part. I didn't, did I leave that big part out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's literally was one of my questions. You're answering yeah. it right now was like, give us like the walkthrough. Right. Like you enter the gates and what do you, you see? You enter the gates, you see Farm. murals everywhere. Mm -hmm. You see a big stage, the businesses, the storefronts on 52nd Street. But then as you're walking through, uh, you'll see tiny houses and our orchard and you'll see the chickens and ducks and we have bees and we have oh, a horse wow. named Recovery. <laughs> so there even with go. our youth programs, they <laughs> do not even see us. When they get to One Art, they're like beeline to the horse uh -huh. and then they'll circle back and say hi. <laughs> but wow. she's a recovered thoroughbred and so she's enormous uh -huh. and... Even our chickens, I'm always surprised at the impact that mm. it has, even after all these years, when high schoolers are in there and, you know, they come, they're all tough, and then they're just, like, holding baby 
chickens, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, like, and it all melts away. And mm. you can just what is that? What does that up. say? What is that? <laughs> yeah. Are you able to like maybe talk about that dynamic? And what does that say about like you know needing to be rough and mm. then holding a chicken and then melting? Mm. Like, yeah, like yeah. I always feel like baby animals are the great equalizer, right? Why does a baby chicken make us melt? Like, yeah. what, is that? what is that? <laughs> so small, right? But not just baby animals. It's this connection, right? So it's it's the older animals. It's mm-hmm. the people. It's when our youth come. It's like it's such a joy because I know, I know what they're coming from, mm-hmm. and I know that for some of them, this is their one. Their breath of fresh air, right? And literally, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And and for people of all ages, we all need it. So I'm really grateful to be able to be a part of a space that brings so much healing to the community and the world. And how did you start this? Are you born and raised in West Philly? I was born in Germantown. Okay, mm-hmm. and. My late husband, Benjamin, found the space. And this was, we actually just celebrated our 20th anniversary on the land on 52nd Street. Wow. And he he lost his life to gun violence. Mm. His vision was to create a healing space for the community. And so as much as I was like, I'm out, I'm Mm. not doing this, I can't do this. Yeah there was this really strong pull like you have to this is a part of your your purpose and you have to do this yeah and actually my current husband won he was a big part of like let's stay and do this like benjamin gave us this vision and we can do it and so with his encouragement we we did it we we stayed on and what we found is that as we continued to build this creation that Benjamin had started, we experienced this really deep healing. Mm. And now we're able to share that with others and we're able to see that healing happen with other community members. But it was really through that deep trauma experiencing that and to know like what's really needed and to make that, again, that authentic connection of knowing what's needed and then doing, doing Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so just gratitude for being able to do it. You know, that's definitely come up on the podcast. (laughs) We've been (laughs) loving the word gratitude recently. And I think the word gratitude has come up in every interview. And I was going to ask a question, and gratitude might very well be the answer. I was going to ask, like, can you describe the process of healing? and how that affects mental health. Like what does healing look like when you open it up? Mm, I think messy is the first word that comes to mind. And that's why spaces like one art are so crucial because you can get messy and you can go out to the farm and you can get messy Mm. in the earth. There isn't usually a safe place to release that. Yeah, we could go into our pillows and scream, Mm. but it feels so good when I go out into our garden and I plant something. Mm -hmm. So it just is time and commitment, and I highly advocate people getting into green spaces. I love this, the topic of this season, talking about mental health, because it is just, I mean, I feel like we could do 10 seasons on this and still not be able to cover everything. I love quoting my co-host here. 
mental health is <laughs> is health. Yes, yeah, it's for real. <laughs> yeah, she says it all the time. Like mental health is health, mm-hmm. and when you think about it, it's just a constant conversation. It's mm-hmm. a continual thing that won't go away because right. there is and, and there are so many ways to be, yes. to live, to exist, yeah. and to heal. Just yeah. get out in nature, mm. breathe in that fresh air. Just live in love and keep on healing. I love that. Thank you so much. Seriously. This is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. Thank you so much to Malika for coming on to speak with us, along with all of the other guests we had on this season. We had so many. Yeah, it was a lot. And, you know, I really appreciated the fact that, like, you know, at the start of this episode, I was doing a lot of air quotes when we did wellness. Mm -hmm. Now I don't have to do that. It makes sense. Connecting to the environment, all these practices. This was great. All right. So what's your biggest takeaway from this season? I've definitely been doing more breathing exercises. Ooh. Love that. It, it's honestly, it's like taking a shot of espresso. Kind of clears the mind. You're like, whoa, what was that? And, and it's all just breathing. Just, you know, in, out, in, out, hold. In, out, in, out. <laughs> I have my tattoos on my wrist that say inhale, exhale. Let's go. But that's just a funny joke because I have a lung disease. But it applies. <laughs> there you go. Take deep breaths. <laughs> <laughs> Take them. Well, thank you all, everybody, for listening to this awesome season three of the So Curious podcast presented by the Franklin Institute. Please follow the Franklin Institute on Instagram. It's just at Franklin Institute. Please follow me on Instagram. It's just at Kirsten Michelle Sills. Absolutely. You can follow me if you want to. I'm (laughs) I'm on Instagram. It's the Bull Bay, you know, spelled the way it probably doesn't sound. It's Mm T-H-E-B-U-L-B-E-Y. We just want to express so much gratitude for you coming back each week listening to this podcast we have three incredible seasons in the bank make sure you listen to every episode they're great seriously and please feel free to message us or comment on the franklin institute's post and tell us what your favorite part was because bay and i just hear ourselves all day we'd love to hear what y'all like (laughs) this is true (laughs) all right well then for the last time this season i'm kirsten michelle sills and i'm the bull bay go birds let's go This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson and Emily Cherish of Radio Kismet. This podcast is also produced by Joy Montefusco, Jayatri Das, and Aaron Armstrong of the Franklin Institute. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our assistant producer is Seneca White. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. 